Good morning, everybody. Great to be here with you this morning. My name is Dan. I'm our College and Young Adults pastor. Uh, and I also just wanted to extend my warm welcome to anyone who might be new this morning. If you're new or relatively new to PBC and looking to get more well-connected, uh, my wife Lindsay and I are actually hosting a dinner at our house, and we've got some space around the table. We would love to welcome you in. So uh, just come introduce yourself after the service. We'd love to say hi and give you some uh, details on how to get to our place this evening if you would like to join. Well, I want to begin this morning by asking you a question. When was the last time that you heard something on the news in the morning? Maybe it was on the radio, maybe it was in your email inbox or on Twitter, but the last time that you heard something on the news that actually changed something that you did that day. This is a question that Neil Postman poses in his book, Entertaining Ourselves to Death. He's writing in 1985, and he asked the question like this. How often does it occur that information provided you on the morning radio or television or in the morning newspaper causes you to alter your plans for the day, take some action you would not have otherwise taken, or provides insight into some problem you are required to solve? Now, as he writes this, the, the implied answer is seldom to never, right? We take in a lot of information through the news but very rarely does that actually have any impact on what we do with our day. Now, Postman is writing particularly about the television and some of the effects that the television have on us as people, but he traces this trend back to an earlier technology. Does anyone have an idea about what technology he might trace this trend back to? Computer, radio, newspaper, the telegraph. He's going to bring it back to the telegraph. And what he talks about is how with the invention of the telegraph, we have for the first time access to information in nearly real time about something that is happening in some place that is a long ways away from us. And one of the un unintended effects of technologies like these is that it lowers what he calls our information action ratio. That is, we're, we're learning all kinds of information about all these things that are happening out there, more information than we'd ever had access to before, and yet that information is increasingly more difficult to do anything with. We now have access to way more information than they did in 1985, way more information than they did uh, with the invention of the telegraph. I can pull out my smartphone, without even unlocking it, I can see headlines about what's happening all around the world. But my ability to actually put any of that, to translate any of that information into action is very difficult. We, we live in a culture with a high information diet and a very low information action ratio. We're gonna continue our series in the book of Exodus this morning. And we're, we're with the people of Israel and Moses at Mount Sinai. God has just delivered the Ten Commandments. He's delivered the Book of the Covenant, which is more information about how to live in right relationship with God and right relationship with one another. God has just given them a lot of information. And God knew that even in their low information diet culture, even though they did not have access to nearly as much information as we do, God still knew that that information alone 
would not empower them to act on, on the instruction that he had just given them. So what we're going to see in our passage for this morning, Exodus 23, is that in addition to some information, God wants to give some motivation. He wants to show the people why it is so important that they actually put into practice the things that he has just told them about. I bring all of this up this morning, not only because we are at this place in the book of Exodus, but because you all are here, and I am here, and I am about to preach a sermon. And in this sermon, there will be some information. But if you've shown up here this morning hoping to just walk away with some information, my prayer is that you would walk away with some motivation. Just like the people of Israel, that the words of God this morning might create in us some kind of motivation to actually put into practice the things that he had told us. And that that motivation might lead us to a place of transformation, where we become more fully the kinds of people that God wants us to be. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 23 this morning. As we open the word, Lord, we, we just acknowledge that we need you in so many ways. We need you to understand your word rightly. We need you to be able to put it into practice. We need you in more ways than we are even aware of. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that you would help us, that you would meet us in exactly the places that we need to be met, and that you would speak the words to us, allow, them, allow us to hear the, the exact words that we need to hear from you this morning. In Jesus' name, we ask this. Well, I want to take us now to Exodus 23. Again, the, the people are, are at Mount Sinai. God has given the Ten Commandments. He's given these additional instructions. And now God speaks again, and he says this starting in verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. And if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries." As God starts off here, he's reminding the people of kind of the bigger picture of what he's doing in their lives and in their story. God has just freed them from slavery in Egypt, but he wants to remind them that he hasn't freed them from bondage just to live in the wilderness. He's freed them from bondage because of a promise that he made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to bring them into a new land a land of blessing and abundance. So, so God begins here by, by reminding them the bigger picture of where it is that they are going. And we also need to be reminded of the bigger picture of where, are go- of where we're going. We're going to come back to that later, but I want to plant that seed now because that's so important for us. But here, I, I want us to think a little bit about this angel. It's kind of interesting. God says, I'm going to send this angel before you. Now, this isn't the first time that an angel has shown up in the book of Exodus. We saw the angel uh, when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. We saw the angel at the parting of the Red Sea. And it seems like throughout the book of Exodus, the angel essentially stands in as a manifestation of God himself. And and we see that even here in the kinds of language that's used of this angel, uh, some pretty incredible things. God says, I want you to, to listen carefully and to obey the words of this angel because my name is in him. 
He even says this angel has, has the ability to forgive or to not forgive sins. So, so it seems that God is just saying, I, I am going with you. This is a manifestation of the presence of God. He's saying, I am going with you. I am going before you. I will lead you into this land. But now he wants to give them some motivation, right? On their way to the land, why is it that they should pay careful attention to all that God has said? Well, let me, let me read those verses for us again. Again, verses 20 to 22. Listen for the motivations that come through in here. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. The two basic motivations that we see here are the classic carrot and the stick. Right? There's a reward and there's a consequence. And he actually starts with the stick there in 21. He says, if you rebel against me, I will not forgive your transgressions. I won't forgive your sins. And we might hear that and go, whoa, like that's, that's, that's a little strong. Like, God, what are you trying to do here? And it's even this kind of language that makes some people say, you know, I, I'm not really about the God of the Old Testament, right? He's just kind of mean and vindictive. I'm about the God of the New Testament. I'm about Jesus who talks about loving your enemies, who laid down his life for those who hated him and who calls us to do the same, who forgives sin. That, that's, that's the God that I'm about. But let, let's think about these words that God is saying. And he says, if you rebel against me, I will not forgive your transgressions. But what actually happens? Do the people of Israel rebel against God? Yes. Does God forgive them? Yes. So, so what is it that God is trying to do here? Why does he say that he's not going to forgive them? Well, he's trying to communicate more than just information. He's trying to communicate motivation. I've got three little kids at home. I love them to death. They are also little sinners. And sometimes they do things every once in a while that they're not supposed to do. Part of my role as a parent is to help them understand that there are consequences for sin. There are consequences for bad decisions. There's consequences for disobedience. And some of those consequences are gonna be natural consequences, some of those consequences might be artificial consequences that I impose on them for their good, to help them learn and grow. So if one of them touches a hot stove, the hand's going to burn, right? That's a natural consequence. If you hit your brother, he's probably going to hit you back. That's a different kind of natural consequence. If you hit me, I'm not going to hit you back, but I'm going to impose an artificial consequence a lost privilege or a timeout or something like that in order to help my kids understand that you can't go about life trying to get what you want by hitting other people. Right? That life doesn't work that way. That's not going to play out well in the long run. If you keep trying to solve your problems that way, you're going to end up in jail or with no friends or something like that. So, so, so I'm trying to help them see this is not a good way to live your life. There are consequences for you if you choose this set of actions and behaviors. In a similar way, in our relationship with God, he wants us to know that there are consequences 
for our actions. There are consequences for our sin. There are consequences if we decide to live life according to our terms instead of according to God's terms. But how effective would I be in my role as a parent if I told my kids, you know what, if you hit your brother, you're going to have a consequence. But you're not really going to have a consequence. I mean, if it happens, I'll just forgive you and we'll just move on. So don't really worry too much about it. That's not going to be a very effective motivation, right? In the same way, God here says to the Israelites, if you rebel, there will be consequences. I will not forgive your sins. And yet we see God still responding to them with compassion and forgiveness afterward. Yes, there are still consequences, but there is also compassion and forgiveness. God is trying to motivate them towards obedience by, by helping them understand and by helping us understand that there are consequences if we decide to live our life according to our terms instead of according to God's terms. But those aren't the most effective kinds of motivations generally, are they? Right? They're certainly not the only kind of motivation. And it's not the primary way that God wants to motivate us towards obedience and our relationship with him. And it's not the primary way that, that he's trying to motivate the people of Israel to obedience to all of this information that he has just shared. And we see this because there's, there's one verse on the stick and that leads him into 10 verses on the carrot. 10 verses of saying, if you choose to follow me, this is what I will do for you. This is what life will look like. And so let's take a look, starting in verse 23. The Lord goes on. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, I will blot them out. You shall not bow down, you sh and you shall not bow down to their gods or serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God. So he, he starts off with, again, this reminder. Right? I am, I am going to go with you. I am going to do this for you. I am going to bring you into the land. But there, there's still a word of instruction here. Right? Even with that promise of blessing, there's still, hey, when we get into the land, I want you to go and I want you to wipe out all the idols. I want you to break down all their pillars. I do not want you to worship their gods. This is just the first two of the Ten Commandments again. Don't have any other gods before me and don't bow down to idols. God says, when you get into the land, those temptations will be there. I want you to get rid of them. I want you to destroy them. And then God is going to go on, and he is going to talk about all of the things that he is going to do for them if they do that, if they choose to live life according to his way. So let's start again in verse 25. He says, you shall serve the Lord your God. Right? That's what he asks of us. That's what he asks of his people. And now he's going to go on and he's going to tell them, and here is all that I'm going to do for you. And he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I shall make your enemies turn their back on you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites from before you. And I will not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you've increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, from the wilderness to the Euphrates, and I will give the inhabitants of the, hand, of the land 
into your hand. This long list of things that God will do for the people, ways that he will bless them, ways that he will provide for them. And we could kind of summarize this whole long section in basically identifying two aspects to the way that God wants to bless them. First, we have, we have this description of the land. That's where God started, by telling him what this land was going to be like that he's going to bring them into. This was a, a land of abundance, of provision. This, this, this is language that, that sounds like Eden. It sounds like paradise. It sounds like, like the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. God says, I'm going to take sickness away from you. I'm gonna, uh, uh, th- those who uh, are trying to multiply will allow to multiply. Right? I-, I will give you a-, a full life and an abundant life in this land. This is what that land will be like. God wants them to see, this is where I'm trying to take you. This is what I have for you. This is what I want to give you. It's this description of the place that God wants to bring them. But then we also have a description of the way that God will bring them there. He says, I'm going to give the land to you. And he says it in a number of different ways, right? We heard that. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to drive them out. I'm going to send my terror to drive them out. I'm going to send the hornets to drive them out. I am going to give the inhabitants of the land into your hand. God says, this is something that I am going to do for you. What God is trying to do here as he tries to motivate his people towards obedience is he tries to paint a picture for them to try to give them a vision of what their lives will be like if they choose to walk with him, to obey what he has asked of them. As Dallas Willard writes about what is required of us if we really want to change, as followers of Jesus or really in any area, he, he identifies three primary ingredients. The first is a vision. We need a vision of what life will look like on the other side of that change. Then we need intention. We need to say, I I, I intend to do something about this. I want to do something. I want to change. And then we need means or or a methodology, a set of practices or habits that will allow us, that will facilitate that change. Vision, intention, and means. And, And sometimes we like to start with the means, right? Oh, if I just do these things, I will change. Or, or if, I, if I just have the intention, if I just want to do it bad enough, I will be able to do it. But here where God starts is he starts with the vision. He says, this is what you have to look forward to. This is what I want to give you. This is what life will look like if you choose to follow me. He's trying to help them create a vision that will motivate and compel them towards obedience. When God brings the people into the land, however, they they never quite live up to this. They're never quite able to to access or to taste all of these blessings that God has given them. And they, they so quickly lose that vision. And when you lose vision, you also lose motivation. We were talking at YAF this last week with some people who play the violin. And uh, we were reflecting on how the first few years of somebody learning to play the violin are a little painful, right? There can be some really terrible sounds that come out of that instrument as you're learning to play that. What does it take to be able to push through those years as the student or perhaps as the parent of that student? What does it take to, to move to the other side of that, to actually be able to change 
the way that you play that instrument. It's going to include means, sure. I've got to practice 30 minutes a day. It's going to include intention, right? You've, you've got to want to do it. But it needs to start with vision. And vision needs to be there all along the way. And so we're going to listen to a Bach violin concerto. And we're going to say, this is what that instrument can do. And if I give myself to learning and growing this craft, I too might be able to be like that one day. And then you've got to keep that vision in front of you. If we are going to follow God in a life of obedience, we need to keep a vision of God in front of us and a vision of life with God in front of us. What does like what does life look like if we choose to actually take action on the things that he is asking of us? Sometimes when we hear commands in Scripture that they come across as burdens, like God is trying to place these requirements on us as if he needs us to do things. What God is trying to do is he's trying to lay out this idea of what life, a life well-lived looks like a life in right relationship with him, in right relationship with each other, and in right relationship with ourselves. He says that this is the life that you can have. We need to keep that vision in front of us so that we can actually follow through on the things that God has asked us to do. The people, they get into the land, but they, they never fully realize that this uh, blessing that the Lord wants to give them. But then Jesus comes along. And, and, and as Jesus talks with his disciples, he's, he says some things that are very similar to what God tells the people of Israel. In fact, on the night before Jesus is crucified, he's with his disciples in an upper room, and he knows that his end is near. He knows that the hour has come, and he wants to leave them with some parting instructions, some parting words. And so this is what he says to them in John 14, 1 through 3. He says, Let not your hearts be troubled, Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus is saying, I am going to prepare a place. It's the same language that God uses with the people of Israel of the promised land. But here Jesus has in view eternity, right? our heavenly home. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Now I want you to think, what, what do you imagine that place to be? Is it just a kind of a, a bigger house with a little more space? Jesus says, my father's house, there's, there's many rooms. I'm going to make one for you. When you get there, it's just going to be the easy life that you've been looking for. Is, is that our vision of heaven? You know, Lindsay and I sat down uh, last weekend to watch a show in the evening. We turned on our TV, and as we turned on the TV, we discovered that some unnamed member of our family had apparently thrown some unnamed projectile into our TV and shattered the screen so that it was no longer usable. Now, if you would have told me then, Dan, in heaven, your TV will never be broken by your children, I would have said, that sounds like a good deal. You know, because I'm, I'm thinking, yeah, didn't Jesus say something about, you know, building up treasures in heaven instead of on earth where moth and rust and children destroy? Like, that's a, something like that. 
that is, that is not a vision of heaven that is going to compel me to take any meaningful action in my life, right? What are we expecting eternity to be like? What, what are we longing for? What are we hoping for? What are we living for? Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when I come back, I am going to take you to where I am, that where I am, you may also be. Jesus is trying to say, I want your vision of heaven to be shaped by the fact that I am there, that you will be with me, that that is what makes heaven amazing. That is what makes heaven worthwhile. That, that kind of a vision of being with Jesus face to face. Yes, in, in that place, there will be no more sorrow. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more death. But what makes heaven so amazing is that we are there with Jesus face to face, fully in his presence, fully witnessing his glory, fully experiencing his love. And we get tastes of that here in this life because Jesus is here with us by his spirit. And we get little tastes here and there. If we are going to live a life of obedience to God, we need to cultivate that vision of God and that vision of life with him. We spend so much time in our lives just doing all kinds of things, this or that, and pursuing this goal and that goal and this dream and that dream. We need to spend more time cultivating a vision of God that will carry us through to a life of obedience and transformation in him. Getting out in nature and being amazed by the goodness of God, the greatness of God. Having a, a conversation with another person about something that's going on in our lives or their lives and seeing the, the face of Jesus in that other person. Bringing our struggles, our sins to God in confession and hearing his voice of forgiveness over us. We need to cultivate this vision of who God is, of who we are in him, and, and what a life lived in him looks like. That vision will compel us to move forward in obedience. But even if we do that, even if we do that, we will find, like the people of Israel, that we can't get all the way there. That, that we'll never fully experience this blessing that God has for us, because just like the people of Israel, we also are disobedient. We also are rebellious. And just like the law could not transform them, so too the law cannot transform us. We can, we can pay attention all day long to the things that God has asked of us, but that in and of itself will never empower us to actually live that out. But we have been given the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus to live inside of us to help us turn our attention away from sin and onto Jesus so that we can cultivate that vision. And then he slowly, over years and decades, will transform us into the kinds of people that look like Jesus, the kinds of people that just naturally find ourselves walking in the way of Jesus. We need the Spirit to come in and do this. But sometimes when we hear this, we think, oh, Great, okay, all I need to do is, is, is sit back. 
I, I just need to sit back and wait and let God do his thing. And if I just wait long enough, you know, eventually I'll change. But how does that work? Sometimes we, we sit back and we ask God to work and, and it feels like we're not changing or, or we're not seeing the evidence of his work in our lives. The interesting thing is that even though it's the spirit that brings transformation, we also have a role to play. And this is exactly what God tells the people of Israel. There's an amazing parallel here with their taking of the land. God has said, yes, I will do this for you, but you still have a role to play. Look at what he says as we uh, turn back to Exodus. Uh, Let's look at verses 31 to 33. God says, I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand. That's what God is going to do. And you shall drive them out from before you. And you shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. It's this strange paradox between I will give them into your hands and you must drive them out. I will drive them out, but, but, but you must take the land. God is going to do this, and yet, and yet he asks something of them too. What God is doing here is he, he's inviting the people to be co-laborers with him in, in this endeavor that he has set out on. He invites them in as a gift of grace into this process of taking the land. And God does that same thing for us. When Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray, he says, I want you to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, would you bring your kingdom to heaven? Would you right all that is wrong in this world, in my heart? God, would would your will be done here? Would your kingdom come? But God also invites us to be co-laborers with him in that, that we actually have an opportunity to participate in the kingdom of God coming to earth. And we do that in all kinds of different ways. We do that in our own formation, right? That process of becoming like Jesus, of, of dealing with our own sin. Yes, it's the spirit who does that, but, but God says, I want you to partner with me in that. I want you to join me in that work. Or in our call to be missional, to spread the gospel to the nations, right? God could just go and do that, right? He could just get his message out there and he does that sometimes, but most of the time he says, I wanna use you. I want to give you an opportunity to be a co-laborer with me in spreading the good news to the world. Or we could think about the work of justice, right? God knows all that is unjust in this world and he could just step in and he could fix it. He could bring justice but he doesn't do that. He invites us to be a part of that process. Yes, he is the one doing the work, but he says, I want to do this with you because this is about relationship, right? To be with Jesus here, now, and for all of eternity. He invites us to be co-laborers with him. Worship is another great example. Worship is one of the ways that we have an opportunity to help bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. As we praise God 
as we declare his glory and his power and his might, we sing with the voices of the angels. We, we sing the chorus of heaven as we declare the praises of God. That's part of being co-laborers with God, part of helping bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. So this morning, we, we, we've talked a lot about, there's been a lot of information that we've talked about, but I think what God wants to do here this morning is to impart some motivation that could translate into action. And so I want to invite us into some of that action now as we go back to worship. So I would like to invite you to stand as we get ready to worship together. If you're able, please stand. And we're going to sing together. We're going to worship together. And I want us to think as we sing, as we declare God's greatness, his glory, his praise, I want us to think of this as an act of bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we sing together, when we worship together, that happens. And so Lord, I pray that here in this place this morning, as we worship you, Lord, that your kingdom would come, that you would give us a vision of who you are, of what you want to offer us in life and relationship with you, and that that vision would motivate us to action, that action of singing out now with our voices, declaring your praise, that action of walking in obedience with you as we leave this place today and as we go about the rest of our week. Lord, would you move us to a place of action? Would you help us by your spirit to do the things that you have asked us to do? Lord, would you inhabit our praise in this place, in this moment, we ask.